This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Jerry, here it is, the final Wheelhouse podcast episode from your palatial office inside the Peoria Sports Complex. It is the Kyle Seeger episode. Jerry, it's episode 15. We've made it this far. Pretty impressive. Kyle Seeger does fit in my palatial <laughs> office space. I, I, I'm, it's been, it, these, these podcasts have been so enjoyable. I, I've received so much uh, positive feedback anywhere from our ownership group to the fans in the stands. And the, I'll get the, I, I, I run, you know, I'm a, I'm a jogger, you know, run might be a aggressive. Jogger? Yeah. <laughs> I, mean, there's, I trot <laughs> and I trot the streets of, of Peoria, sometimes the trails and, and, uh, actually twice since we've been here in spring training now when i'm jogging i'm jogging in in mariner garb which is notable yeah i i I, you know i stand out in the moment and which may or may not be intentional (laughs) (laughs) and and i'm jogging down you know the the p83 area on my way to the to the back trails by the canals twice this spring i have had two mariner fans i'm assuming they are mariner fans you know, one in a minivan, uh, that, 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 stood us, out, I promise. uh, that stood out, roll down the windows and give me the fist pump. You know, Jerry, love the podcast. Uh, you got it, brother. Really? <laughs> keep, keep, keep trotting. Did you tell them that you were actually listening to the podcast while running? <laughs> there's a, there's oddly enough that this, this, it plays over in my head because of the, the, you know, the melodious tones of your voice. They just continue to echo. I'm sure that's the reason why. Hey, well, camp is winding down. We are a week away from opening day. We'll have a chance to talk on opening day. That'll be our last podcast before first pitch of the 2018 season, which will be fantastic. Uh, but obviously some tough news for the Mariners finding out last night during the Mariners game against the Brewers that we will not be seeing David Phelps this season. Tommy John, he tore that ligament in his final start of the springtime. Really tough news. What do you make of David Phelps? I feel terrible for him, for the player. You know, we went out, we acquired him. We were aggressive in bringing him in last July. Obviously had a bit of a hiccup with the the bone chip removal that that cost him the end of his 2017 season. But came back and the stuff was as good as it's ever been very early in the spring. And we were just waiting for him to get a little bit more precise in his location. And oddly enough, the day that that happened was the day that, that, you know, ultimately he, he blew his elbow and uh, he's going to have a Tommy John. He'll be out 12 to 15 months. The, the good thing here for, for David is that, uh, it happened early enough this season that he's only going to lose one year as the, is the outcome. The bad thing is it's, it's a year spent with the Mariners. So, uh, you know, we wish, we wish him well in his recovery. He'll be with us throughout. We're going to keep him here with us and, and with the club because he is a leader in that clubhouse and, and, and one of the more prepared guys you're ever going to come across. Just a, he's, he's part of the club and, uh, I feel bad for him. I feel bad, badly for us. We'll find a way to, to build a bridge toward, toward the ninth inning, which is where Phelpsy was, was slated to be. And fortunately, that's an area of depth for us that unfortunately we've taken more than one hit in the spring. Is that kind of rare then to have a guy go under this type of procedure? 
before the season starts and to basically have his presence over the course of the full 162? Is that a rare thing? Uh, I think it's a rare thing. You know, more often than not, particularly in, in David's case, you know, he's he's a, he's a six-year player. So this is, this is his final year of club control with the Mariners. And he would have the ability, if he so chose, to go ahead home to Pittsburgh and rehab at home and, and make a go of it in free agency next winter. And his first, his first thought was, I would really love to stay with the team. And I think that's a great thing. So he'll, he'll come up. We've got a really good staff down in the training room and, and, uh, he made it a point to, to suggest that that was a, a critical thing for him. And he loves the teammates just being in the clubhouse. And I think they all embraced him and, and vice versa. So I'm glad he's going to be with us. I, I, I've been through something myself very similar. And, and was asked to stick around with the team. And, and, uh, I'll say for the first two months, it was, it was awesome business as usual. And then you start to feel like maybe you're not doing your part. And that's hard. It's hard on the individual player, not on the group. Uh, but David's wired a, a little better than I was. <laughs> so God bless him. So we mentioned this is obviously a tough injury for the Mariners, but we've seen some really strong performances from guys that we didn't exactly know what to expect from in the bullpen entering camp. Where do you go from here? You know, well, first, I think for the most part, our bullpen from Edwin Diaz to Juan Nicasio to Nick Vincent to Dan Altavilla, uh, James Pazos, who's starting to get hot after maybe a few stumbles early in camp. He's really getting it going. Mark Sepchensky, with the exception of one fumble out in Maryville, early in the spring has been very good of late and you know Casey Lawrence couldn't have thrown better than he has this spring and and provides us with some depth in terms of inning uh inning protection from a a long roll in the bullpen and we've got another handful of guys who came in and showed us good things you know Ryan Cook and and Jason Bradford stand out as guys who have had really uh, bright nights and we're going to find out over the course of the season who can fill in for us and you know the the Truth is that the replacement for David Phelps might come from outside our organization. This is a this is a time of year where there are other solutions, and and you can go out whether it be on the waiver wire or small trades. Uh, this is a, a period in the season where there is more availability than than most. Well, on the uh, positive side of things for the Mariners, just the other night we saw Mike Zunino club three home runs in his first three at bats. He got a standing ovation, which I declared the first in the history of the Cactus League, <laughs> after his fourth at-bat when he roped a single into right field. Scott Service kind of downplayed it in his comments immediately after the game, basically saying he's in a good spot right now. And he kind of referenced that a couple of times. I think that's safe to say. That was really impressive. It is the Cactus League. It is a spring game. But still, you go three for three with three home runs at a hard-hit single. That's a good night. Uh, and what you just described from Scotty is a rave. <laughs> but the, uh, no, Zlat, it was awesome to watch. And, and, you know, he hit, he hit the three bombs. And, and oddly enough, I thought the best at bat was the last one when he singled to right field. When he drove a deep count, he took a really close two strike pitch and, and ran it to a three strike, a three ball count and then hit a rocket in right field that, little known information here, what we now know from the information we received from satellites. The hardest hit ball of his four ABs was the single to right. And uh, probably fairly reflective of the place that Mike is in. He's in a great place right now as a hitter. He's using all of the field, as you could see last night. Single to right, homer to right, homer to left, and then a line drive that almost knocked the fence down. It just happened to be high enough. 
Uh, he's, he's caught well. He's throwing well, including last night. And I, I think the, the encouraging thing about Mike more so than the fact that his bat has really heated up over the last week or so is just where he's been all spring as a leader. And he's, he's come into this camp as a leader on the team, which is something so new for, for Mike to, to feel so confident coming into a season. And I'm, I'm, very, I'm really happy for him where he is and what that means for the Mariners. His performance spurred our post-game debate, which we took very seriously, even though it was the Cactus League. What's more impressive, a spring training immaculate inning, see Edwin Diaz, or a spring training three-homer game like we saw from Mike Zanino? What do you think? Uh, if I had my vote, I would say the three-homer game, although I will say this. I, I said last night when he came, I've never seen a four-homer game in spring training, but I've seen multiple three-homer games in spring training, odd as it is. Mike Zanino... Uh, two years ago, my first year here with the Mariners, Robinson Cano against the Dodgers in, a, in an evening game here in Peoria uh, late in the spring. And then in the mid-90s, I was playing with the Mets and actually saw two of them from two different players in one spring training. Uh, former Seattle Mariner Butch Husky and, uh, and a left-hand phenom by the name of Kevin Roberson. So, you know, sometimes they hit and sometimes they don't. But the, the three-homer game, I started thinking, is, is pre- maybe it's something I see a little bit more than the immaculate inning. But in my mind's eye, I think if I were to look through the, the grand scope of baseball through the years, the immaculate inning happens more frequently because there's there's some in the early days of spring, there's some guys running out there at tail end of games that have A-ball level experience or are fresh out of the draft. And if you get a stuffy, experienced major leaguer like an Edwin Diaz who goes out there on a day that he's on, it, it, it can he can carve through that pretty quickly if they're throwing it over the plate. And Something tells me intuitively that there's been more of those than three homer games, but that's just... Now, this is just in spring training we're talking about, not in the regular season? No, regular season, the immaculate inning is is incredibly rare. There were eight of them last year. Yeah, which is phenomenal. Which is like an all-time high. You know, it got us going off even in more tangents than this when thinking about three homer games, and it continues to amaze me, and maybe this will change this year. Nelson Cruz has never had a three-home run game. You look over his time with the Mariners, and even before that, his year with the Orioles. I mean, he's been essentially the best home run hitter in the American League in that stretch of time, and never in his career has he homered three times in one game. I guess it's a pretty hard thing to do. It's a, it seems shocking to me. <laughs> yes. I, you say it, and it seems shocking. But, you know, the three-homer game is one of those games where your you're, you're jaw drops because of the, 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 the ability that, that these players are showing. I guess the tough time I have, because having been in the American League West for as long as I've been, and Nelson has been in the American League West for most of that time, I feel like I've seen him hit 7,000 home runs, you know? <laughs> and and in that ballpark in Texas on a summer night when the ball is just jumping, it's hard for me to believe that Nelly didn't hit three pop-ups that just right. floated out of the park. So uh, count that as one of those things that, that I would say is ultra shocking to me, but maybe this is the year. Did you ever come close to an immaculate ending? Or did you throw one and I just don't know about it? Of course I did. Yeah, <laughs> of course I did. Yeah, it's a, there, was a, there, there was a day in 1982 where as a seventh grader or whatever I was right. in, in the, no, it's 1982, I was in the ninth grade. I, uh, no, I, I, I can't recall ever having an immaculate ending because now I'm battling against myself. It's, it's, I have to throw nine straight pitches right. that are strikes or swing and misses, no chance. You know, that's the thing that always amazes me about it. Tim Kirchin wrote a great book a few years ago. And in it, he talked about how difficult this game is. And he talked about just the simple act of throwing strikes. And he referenced it, like look at basketball, for example. 
if you get almost any regular three-point shooter in the NBA and you get them hot and you say, hey, go take nine straightaway threes, I mean, there's a there's a decent chance that they can drain nine straight threes. I mean, that, to some guys, is just a warm-up. Uh, but even for a really good major league pitcher, just to throw nine consecutive strikes, that in and of itself is an incredibly difficult thing to do. Even in a bullpen session when there's no hitter standing in there threatening to hit it. You know, it's, sure. You will see major league pitchers, and you're going to get the bark, and they'll 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 grab the ball and yell because they it's just not that easy. The ball is active; it's traveling sixty feet six inches, and it moves. You know the the seams and the 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 grab the the the, the I guess the humidity in the air will force movement that you're not expecting, and it's not that easy to be that precise with the ball. And then you see guys that make it look easy. Frankly, Mike Leak makes it look easy. He throws strikes like he's just. It's easy. He's in a rocking chair. I remember in this is in the mid nineties. I want to say it's nineteen ninety five or nineteen ninety six. And Greg Maddox had gone some absurd number of innings without running a, a two zero count on any single hitter. And when I say it was an absurd number of innings, it was it was an, ex, an excess of a hundred innings that he had not run a two and zero count on anybody. And, and, and you're talking about one of the great strike throwers of all time, one of the great pitchers of all time. And we're sitting and watching it on television. And we, I was in the National League East at the time. And he was throwing a game against the San Diego Padres. And the Padres had a sinker baller by the name of Joey Hamilton, who was on the other side. And Greg Maddox, after this absurd string of never running a 2-0 count on a hitter, goes 2-0 on Joey Hamilton. <laughs> And I thought, there's no way this is happening. And, uh, you know, maybe Joey Hamilton is the, he's the holy grail of hitters that can run Greg Maddox into the ground. But, uh, it is, it's a treat to watch strike throwers do what they do because having done what they do, I know it's not easy. Just even in bullpens, throwing 10 straight strikes is remarkable. You know, another one, and I, I don't want to hog the airway. No, it's, this is your show, Jeremy. But, uh, I was, I was working in Anaheim and this, this dates back to 2000. 12 or 13 right in there and Bartolo Colon uh, who we will affectionately refer to as Boogie or the Big Sexy uh, he he goes out and he, the, the, I, I want to say it was the first 36 pitches of the game 30, 38 pitches 38 and it was it was bam bam every single pitch was a strike and and at a certain point you noticed you know right it was yeah. like once you got to you know you get through three hitters and he's such a strike thrower that you just roll with it once you look up on the board, and because you see, you know, at the time up on the, the, the LED board, there's a ball strike count, 38-0. <laughs> and you're thinking, this seems unusual to me. And, uh, and sure enough, it was an all-time record for consecutive strikes thrown in the game. And it was phenomenal to watch. And I've never gotten it out of my head because he didn't throw a single pitch other than a fastball. It was, it was 38 consecutive fastballs that he just located to different sides of the plate. And, and it wasn't like they were in the dirt and we were swinging over or under them. They were just, they were there. Strike one, strike two, get out of there. You know, it's, it's so cool that you were there for that because I've referenced that on air before. And the, the 38 straight strikes is incredible. The only thing that makes it more amazing to me, you know whose record he broke to get to 38 consecutive strikes? The, the last guy you would ever guess who owned the record of consecutive strikes thrown before Cologne? Mitch Williams. Ah. Tim Wakefield. Wow, knuckleballer. Can you believe that? That's shocking. I mean, that one, that's the last guy you'd ever think, right? Yeah. No, there's no question. 
I think he, I think Wakefield had thirty. It was either thirty or thirty-two. It was in the low thirties. So there, were, Cologne definitely got a little bit of a cushion there. But you would never think that the knuckleballer would have consecutive strikes of more than four. I mean, like four no, straight strikes would be a ton. You were really relying on a swinging strike as sure. a knuckleballer. That's a you know Wakefield was different in that among knuckleballers. He was, he and Tom Candiotti, I think were probably the, the two that stood out. You know, when you watched Phil Necro in the day, it was knuckleball after knuckleball. And when you watched Candiotti or Tim Wakefield throw, they're going to sneak in their, their fastball, their 81 mile an hour heater and, and they'll freeze you. They'll flip up a curveball that's, you know, 72 miles an hour. They pitch. They just, they pitch with a knuckleball as their primary weapon. And, you know, I wonder to myself how many, if there's 30 some strikes that wake through, you know, consecutively, how many of them were swinging strikes? It's got, I mean, it's I, be like it has to, right? I would assume so. Uh, before we move on, we want to talk Felix and Paxson, but you, you mentioned Maddox. Neither of whom has a knuckleball. <laughs> Let's hope not. You mentioned Maddox, and to me, this is one of the great pieces of under-the-radar baseball career stats. Maddox finished his career with, you know how many walks? 999 career That's walks. That's awesome. He somehow found out in his final year, and I assume he knew he was hanging it up at the end of the year, right? He found out that he had 999 career walks in September, and he had three starts to go. And he said, there is no way I'm walking a 1,000 guys in my career. He went his last three starts, no walks, and he finishes 999 career walks. When you talk about a, a master control pitcher, I mean, that was fantastic. I'm done walking. This. <laughs> I've had enough of again. this. You know, I'll give you a funny story. I, I recapped this last night. Greg Maddox is an artist at, at what he did. And, you know, very rarely do you see somebody who has that kind of precision, that kind of touch, can make the ball act in, in so many different ways. And I, and I dated back to, to the spring of 2003. And I was in Surprise, Arizona, watching a B game on the backfields with another scout by the name of Ed Lynch, former GM of the Chicago Cubs and longtime major league pitcher. And, and we're watching a B game with a 19-year-old right-hander named Zach Cranky pitching for the Royals against the Rangers in a, in a B game on the backfields. Uh, and the Chicago Cubs were playing in Surprise that day in the A game against the Rangers. And uh, we're, we're standing there. Ed and I were looking over the screen, watching Zach throw and, you know, just carving up major league hitters as a teenager and, uh, and turn around and Greg Maddox busts in between the two of us, pops up over the screen. He was pitching the A game and they had just arrived to go stretch on the backfields. He said, what are we watching? You know, and, and Ed Lynch, who had played with, with Maddox, you know, slaps him in the side and, and, uh, he turns around and he goes, what do you got? And I said, I think we're watching you. <laughs> and, he, <laughs> sure. and he said, I'll get out of here. And he looked over, he watched two pitches. He looks back at me, slaps me on the back and goes, I'll buy it. <laughs> really? And walked away. He's a, he is a, he had a better field of pitch than any other, than any other pitcher I ever really saw. And in the heyday of the Braves, and, and again, at the time I was in the National League East, so I got a chance to, to see him a lot. And he threw his bullpens. They threw every day. You know, Glavin, Smoltz, Maddox, they all threw a bullpen, a touch-and-feel bullpen, we'll call it, every day, where the catcher sat up in front of the plate, and they threw from the mound, let's call it 55 feet. And they would throw these bullpens at 75 or 80%. And if you remember old Fulton County Stadium, the, the mounds, the bullpen mounds were on the side of the field. They, it wasn't a bullpen that was 
you know, off in, in the distance. It was right there on the field, kind of like old candlestick. And one day I was out doing my run, and, and I just I went and sat and watched Maddox Strohn his touch and field bullpen. And when he was done, I asked him, what are you trying to accomplish with the, the, the short bullpen, and why do you guys do it every day? He said, well, doing it every day keeps you in a rhythm and, and like gives, gives you a release point and, and where you want to be keeps your arm fresh. Uh, he said, and what I'm trying to accomplish, I want to leave one footprint. And that blew my mind. I'm, I'm, one footprint? If I go out there and throw, it looks like a minefield of spike marks <laughs> all over the mound. And sure enough, you look down, and it, there was there was roughly one footprint where that was his goal, was to land his, his lead leg in the same spot every time because it's almost like a steering wheel on a car. If, if, if effectively you turn left or you turn right, with your front foot, that that's the way the ball will, will steer. And his goal in throwing his bullpen was to land in the same spot because he knew if he did that, he would be able to repeat his slot and repeat his pitches. And that's how you can say three games left to go. I'm not walking anybody. How foreign is it in today's game for a player to pick up and throw a ball every day? A pitcher, that is. I would say it's it's virtually none of the major league. It's starters. You know, relievers have to. Sure. Uh, starters don't even play catch every day anymore. And some of it is because the, you know, in today's generation, to be fair, it, the velocity levels that they're carrying are much higher, which re- requires some downtime for recovery. And, you know, it, it also limits the number of innings because it's just harder to sustain. But pitchers now throw less than they've ever thrown. And I'll say that maybe the one guy who might be uh, slightly on a different program in that regard is Trevor Bauer of the Indians. Who's got a very creative throwing program and has uh, has been incredibly durable, and, and he keeps his arm in great shape, and, and that's one of the ways he does it. Along the lines of starting pitching, obviously Felix and Paxton have uh, seen recent action of the backfields, and uh, both look very good. This has been obviously a very different spring for Felix, even from the start of spring. He just got started so much earlier than he ever has, or shouldn't say ever, but really in the last seven or eight years. He will go on Saturday as of right now, although you guys have not declared an opening day starter. He is in line for opening day. What are you hoping to see on Saturday during his final tune-up? Uh, really, I'd like to see him build his pitch count. And the, the, he will, from the time that he threw that inning and change versus the Cubs before he was hit with a line drive, to earlier this week when he was out there throwing against the San Diego Padres, minor leaguers on the backfield, Felix has looked really good all spring. He's in very good shape. His arm's in good shape. He's executing his pitches. He threw three crisp innings, struck out five on 41 pitches the other day versus the Padres. We'd like to see him add on to that and get into that 65-ish range uh, on Saturday against the Cubs and give us reason to believe that if we send him out there five days later, he can get into that 75-85 pitch range. So I have no problem believing he's going to be able to do it. He's throwing the ball incredibly well. I would say the three innings he threw here in Peoria on the backfields earlier this week were three of the best innings I've seen him throw in the time I've been with the Mariners. His, his, his release point, the consistency of his stuff, working ahead in the count, he looked like he was having fun, and, and he was the best player on the field. And, and that's who Felix Hernandez has been. And he had that you – know, I've known a lot of great baseball people in my life, and some of the people that, that, that were involved in baseball in the 50s and the 60s who did not necessarily subscribe to statistical review, let's say, uh, they will tell you – you just look with your eye, 
and the and the 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 bucks will show you their antlers. The guy that's going to go out there and do it for you. And on that day, in in old school thought, Felix showed us his antlers. He was he's ready to go. And and what we can't do is we can't put the rest of the the rotation in the position for potential chaos. Everybody needs to know what their day is so that they can start to set up. So, you know, we, we set it up so that Pax and Felix were throwing on the same day, and we'll make a decision as we get through Saturday's games once both of them have thrown again as to which way it lines up. But if Felix is ready to go, we're going to give him every chance to do that. Has there been or how much has there been a tweak of his overall delivery coming into this year? I don't think there's necessarily been a tweak. He's tweaked his throwing program some. Okay. Uh, he's definitely tweaked what he's doing in terms of body and arm care. And I, like I said, I think he's in, in, in great shape in that regard. But he's doing some of the things that we have suggested with the hesitations. He did it on the backfield against the pots, you know, the, kind of the hang and drift, a little of the Johnny Cueto mojo, so to speak. And and it worked. Uh, he punched a guy out on a changeup under the strike zone on the quick pitch where he just – he. He didn't even come set. He just burst from the rubber and fired it up there. And, and it was, it was cool to see because it's a, it's kind of Felix is not necessarily an old dog, but he is learning a couple of new tricks. And, and I thought he looked really good and I'm excited to see him on Saturday and fingers crossed he's in a good place. And we know that your travel to and from Peoria is a little different for most. No first class airfare for the Depotos. You're in your car. You will see Felix's start, and then are you making your way back home? We are. We we gotta we gotta grab Louie and Winnie. You know, take the <laughs> take the dogs, and and we gotta get them back to to Seattle. Along the way, we're gonna take a pit stop in San Jose to watch my son pitch, nice. uh, and which is a freebie for us because it just happens to be on our route. But uh, it'll take us a couple of days to drive back to Seattle. We gotta get the dogs, you know, back home, and uh, we. We don't feel comfortable flying with them, and and you can't really blast the tunes on the the next Alaska Air flight. You know, it's, you have to be There's a little no more well behaved on, uh, on the Alaska. Correct, Kirk out. You know, it's funny. I, I was on a flight during the basketball season, and there was a I'm going to say Jerry. There was a 40 pound dog on a leash that just walked right onto the flight, right down the aisle, and sat down. You know, right by the owner's feet, and it did make me wonder. Are there no more? There are no more rules for this type of thing. Dogs on airplanes. I mean, I, I guess not. Although, as long as you're willing to buy a ticket, that's all yeah. it takes, huh? That's okay. all it takes. I, and I think the the forty pound dog on a leash. My first reaction is, I'm very glad the dog was on a leash. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I would say so. I'm a dog lover, but still, I know not everybody is. One of the one of the really great things about camp this year has been D Gordon. I mean, there's no doubt about it. And we were talking about this the other night on the air. I don't know if anyone ever expected D to actually peg a runner at a base all spring, right? Because, first of all, you have to have that opportunity. And you could conceivably go all spring and not have the opportunity as an outfielder to throw a runner out. Add on to that the fact that it's a position change and he's learning so much. And he's thrown out enough runners either at home or on the base paths, second or third, that it's tough to kind of keep them all straight. What have you made of this rapid progression of D Gordon I think he's been fascinating and I would have told you that the two things that were least likely to come quickly to him were situating his feet with the ball on the ground because for so many years he's been gathering the ball with his with his legs spread left and right whereas opposed to the 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 outfielder is going to charge the ball coming forward with his feet pointing more north and south as opposed to east and west 
he picked that up pretty quickly. And the other thing is the arm stroke, particularly as a second baseman or as an infielder in general, you are taught to take the ball out of your glove and get it up to your ear quickly and you throw with a shorter arm. Whereas in the outfield, we're, we're lengthening our arms to try to stretch out a throw. And, and it, it took him no time at all really to pick up on that. It's a weapon. We, we've now seen, I think we're, uh, we've made some adjustments. Last night with Mitch Hanniger throwing out a couple of guys, D. Gordon has been, I mean, he's been like William Tell out there. And it's, it's fun when he does it because he doesn't do it and then just turn around and walk back to his position. He's got, you know, he's got a little bit of flair to him that is thoroughly enjoyable. It's really fun to watch. And even as the guy on the other side who's getting thrown out, you have to look up and laugh sometimes if he's, you know, he's blowing the gun on his finger and putting it in his pants or, or just, you know, clapping his hands. He's such an enjoyable player to watch. And one of the real highlights of our spring has not just been what he's done offensively and the, the energy that he's shown or even the transition to center field, but, but the, the impact that he's had in our clubhouse is to me something that's really notable that you don't see on TV that's never going to show up on a stat page. And it's been real. And uh, whether that is, whether that is just his energy or his instinct as a lifelong baseball person, he just knows how to, to bring people together. And it, it's so fun to watch. To say that D Gordon puts everything into a throw is, like maybe an understatement. I mean, he is barrel rolling on his throws. In all honesty, as as amusing as it is and entertaining as it is to see him launch himself with the ball, is there any concern of a, a rough landing on a shoulder or something like that? Because we've seen it on a fairly routine basis from D. Could be. I you know I, I see uh, while I was with the Arizona Diamondbacks for years, uh, Eric Burns, now of MLB Network, had the same. It was, you were going to see something unique every time he threw the ball. A somersault, he's going to jackknife, something was going to happen and he was going to wind up on the ground. And some players are so athletic that they're able to do that and it's really no issue at all. And in D's case, you know, the, the velocity behind the throws has been shockingly good. Because it's, I'm not entirely sure how much more he weighs than the 40 pound dog. <laughs> it's a, you know, he's a he's a he's a really athletic, thin bone guy, but incredibly strong arm. He's got a little bit more zip in his bat than than maybe we were anticipating. We've seen that this spring, and you know, he's, D is a throwback player to you know that that the let's call it 1965 to 1985 that 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 Willie McGee, that speedster, that Vince Coleman, the guy who can really change a game with his legs. And what we're finding out is that at this stage in his career to make this type of positional change and make it look this easy, his baseball acumen is just off the charts. You, you, you don't see guys that embrace this the way he has and, and who made it look this easy. I, there's, I, I don't want to put any pressure on him, but the, the, his goal, and I know he'll tell you his goal, is to go win a gold glove in center field like he did at second base, and I wouldn't put it past him. It certainly looks that level of good. Can you almost make the case that he's been miscast so far? I mean, you mentioned he's won a gold glove in the infield, so you can't say he's been miscast because he's obviously excelled there. But this is so rare what we're seeing, and we don't want to get too far ahead of ourselves. We haven't even seen opening day. But as we've talked about on this podcast before, there's no place in America harder to play the outfield than where we are right now here in the Cactus League. And that we, I said it last night. We we're sitting. I was talking to, to Junior Griffey, uh, who's in in camp for a couple of days, and and we were talking. And I mentioned it to him that you know D Gordon playing center field in Arizona. I, I have seen legitimate 
lifelong center fielders who've always played the position go out with the high skies in Arizona and box balls, you know, I truly like it's a pinball machine out there. It's a you, it, you get some really rough wind days. You get some days where there's not a cloud in the sky, and and the ball just gets lost. And that's it. How many times have you seen in spring training the guy with his arms outstretched? Like I don't know where it is. Right. D's not lost a single ball. He's tracked every one of them. And one thing that I found remarkable, especially for a veteran player, you get a lot of the the wind blown homers or the balls that as soon as they are touched in spring training, you know it's out of the ballpark. D tracks that ball to the wall every time because he's trying to teach himself to, to develop more efficient routes. And uh, that's, that's astute. You, you're going to need to learn how to do those things. I, I think his transition has been remarkable and certainly one of the strong points of our spring. What's it like when Jerry DePoto and Junior hang out in spring training? Uh, hopefully no one gets hurt, you know, it, it, but that's just, an, it's another day. But, Mary, you know, I walked in, Junior shows up and he's, he's like, poof he's gone and uh, i never know quite when he's coming and generally don't know don't how long know he's gonna he's stay coming? nope <laughs> and I, wa- I walked in the other day and i saw him i said i heard there's a rumor that you might be here and i i'll give junior credit he doesn't want pomp and circumstance he doesn't want to walk in and have a banner hanging up you know welcoming him wel- welcoming him to the ballpark he doesn't put on a uniform and go out in the dugout he generally stays in the shadows and and he spends his time talking with the players in the background spending time with with a staff member i walked into a, he he showed up on the off day uh Apparently didn't look at our schedule. <laughs> uh, showed up on the off day and was sitting in the was sitting in the training room visiting with some of our minor leaguers who were dealing with injury, including Kyle Lewis, encouraging them about some of his history and and sticking with it and bouncing back from injuries and and I don't know what it's like to be on the receiving end of that, but I think it's remarkable that he comes in, he spends a couple of days, and that's the way he's trained is to is to move toward the youngest element who he feels like he can affect or impact. You bring up the minor leagues, and obviously we have seen some strong performances from guys that just because numbers being what they are have to be optioned or sent down to the minor league side of things. Is there a name or two of somebody that has really stood out to you that is no longer in big league camp with the Mariners? No, in different ways. Uh, I, I can't say that the offensive line popped, but uh, David Friedis, who we picked up uh, over the offseason as a waiver claim, is a remarkably good receiver. That, uh, that really stood out. We're, we're looking at, at simple things that can change the, the dynamic of our club. Uh, very encouraged with where Braden Bishop is in his development. Where he's come from in the last year and a half, let's say, is the trek is starting to look, you know, more big leaguer-ish than, than it had looked early on in his professional career. That's been encouraging. Some of the, the guys that are still in camp, you know, rookies who came in and had to do something to to be noticed. And I guess the one that stands out the most or the two that stand out the most, we've talked a lot about Daniel Vogelbach, who's had a remarkable spring training. The other guy is Mike Marjima, who is uh, Mike Marjima has very quietly over the last two or three weeks really created some separation in the competition for for a backup catcher hitting the ball as hard as anyone in our camp and and really is doing it under the radar i'm not sure there were too many people in baseball who really knew who mike was that's been encouraging and we like some of the young arms that we got to watch along the way and 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 see the progress made by rob whalen see some of the progress made by our young relievers guys like art warren if i had to pick a guy who we didn't know about who wasn't naturally in camp who really opened up some eyes it's wyatt mills you know gonzaga's own 
our third round pick from last year who really lit us up and he came in and he attacked the strike zone with really good stuff and not shockingly the I, the, the major league crew wanted to know why he didn't have a name on his back <laughs> you know he's, he's, he really opened up some eyes as have some others but those are some that stand out I congratulated Mike Marjama the following day after his inside the park home run in Goodyear, and he just looked at me and said, "God given." <laughs> that was the perfect response when a catcher hits an inside the park home run. But as you know, he doesn't look like a catcher really in many aspects, especially when he's running the bases. No, and and really hasn't been a catcher. The the he's he's an older guy for a guy with just three weeks of major league service. We picked him up in a trade late last season from the Tampa Rays. Originally drafted and developed with the Chicago White Sox. You know, Mike's now in his late 20s, super athletic guy. Did not convert to catcher until he got to Pro Bowl. Uh, in, in a funny story, and, and I will tell this because I'm sure it will be shared if Mike Marjaba turns into a star or whether he plods along and spends the, the next 10 years as a, as a standard backup catcher. But Mike Marjama played junior college baseball for Andy McKay, uh, our farm director, Andy McKay. And when I called Andy as we were pursuing Mike via trade, we had kind of pursued him, been rebuffed, pursued him, been rebuffed. And then we were able to land him the third time we tried. And I asked Andy, what can you tell me about Mike Marjima's makeup, his, his work habits, personality? And Andy said, hmm, first thought that comes to my mind is I cut Mike Marjima. <laughs> uh, and, uh, you know, Mike was a shortstop, third baseman, played some outfield, very athletic and versatile defender. And, you know, once, once they decided that he would transition to catcher, that's a, that, that work Joe DiCarlo has found out in the last year and a half. It's a big adjustment. And, you know, Mike handled it very well. It's taken him a little time to put together the pieces and the receiving he can really throw. Uh, he's learning the nuances of calling a game, which is still somewhat new to him. But he's always been able to swing the bat. He's got great bat speed. He can really run. And as far as, as scouts, you know, scouting reports, if you're grading out Mike Margem as an athlete, he looks and, and, and moves like a middle-of-the-field athlete. He just happens to play in back of the field, which is uh, it's unusual. You don't see too many catchers like that. He's been a really, really fun storyline in camp, and it was a treat to get to know him a little bit last year, and uh, it's been fun to see him excel so much this year so far in spring as we are near the very end. We'll get to a couple of reader questions here, Jerry, and uh, this one comes from Jordan in Bowling Green, Kentucky. Download and listening. Thank you, Jordan. So Jordan says he's been to 15 different ballparks so far. He's hoping to get to all 30, of course, one day. He was just curious, Jerry, your favorite ballparks to visit and your favorite specialty ballpark foods to eat. It's like the boomstick, for example, right? Wow. Like, so I'm not sure. I'm not sure what the Depoto food spread is like um, in these visiting ballparks. But what, what's your favorite ballpark to go to, and some food? Uh, on the food spread, let's say in a word, elaborate. <laughs> <laughs> I would expect nothing less. No, I did, actually, food. Most often, I, I when I go to the ballpark, I eat in the press dining room and and visit. You know, like like you, like our TV crew, like our radio crew, like most of the written press. And some places are better than others. Let's just leave sure. it at that. I, I will say that there are certain places in Northern California where I'll just bring my own. <laughs> and there are other places that, that I, that I feel very comfortable uh, hitting. The, the ballparks I like visiting. I think Safeco Field, when, when I've worked for other clubs is, 
it's if it's not the best ballpark in the league, it's among the top three. Uh, as far as ballpark aesthetics go, I love San Francisco. I think it's a, it's a great ballpark and a great location. It's easy to access. You can walk from the hotel and there's not a bad seat in the house. I love the aesthetics going to Pittsburgh. And I think it's um, among the prettiest ballparks in baseball. I love the statues out front. I think they did a remarkable job with the brick and making it feel kind of old school but new. That's fun. I think Camden Yards is kind of timeless, and it's and it, I think that's it's a it's a neat ballpark to sit and watch a game in. It's it's hard to miss going to big league ballparks. I love Coors Field. Uh, it, it was kind of my baseball home for a long time. It's uh, you're usually going to see something offensively that you never saw before, <laughs> and uh, and it's just gorgeous to, to you know a sunset in, in Colorado when they're starting to play the game. It's probably a nightmare for the first baseman, but it is it's it's good for your 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 camera. So uh, there's so many beautiful ballparks around the league, and they keep keep redoing them. If I had to pick a food that I was going to eat on a concourse, I will say that that you probably can't go wrong just grabbing a Dodger dog. It is, it, it's unique. I'm not a huge hot dog person, to be fair, but there's like many things. I, I sat for a game in the bleachers at Wrigley Field just because I wanted to experience it. I went and got a Dodger dog just because I wanted to experience it. The things that you can do at these various ballparks that, you know, I tried to work my way up like Tom Browning did on the roof across the street from Wrigley Field back in the day. I didn't have much luck, but I just, I want to know what the experience is about. And, you know, if I had to go back and pick one, I think the Dodger dog is, is, is a memorable one. I haven't spent a lot of time eating kind of concourse food while in that ballpark. So I'm otherwise occupied. You know, I think one of the, I'm curious your thoughts. One of the most underrated ballparks, and I think you can put Safeco on that list. Safeco does not get enough love. That's right. Both know it is just stunning. Everybody listening knows that. I think Target Field is one of the most neglected ballparks in terms of just beautiful ballparks, fan-friendly ballparks. Has the statues out front. It was built on such a small plot of land. It's kind of unique. If you're in the nosebleeds in right field. Hold on to that handrail. If you go tumbling, you might wind up on the warning track. I think Target Field is one of, on a great Minneapolis summer night, it is one of the great spots to catch a game. Gorgeous. I, I, I agree 100%. And you'd never know it was there. It is, uh, I mean, literally you can walk up to the gate of Target Field and not realize you're descending on a Major League Baseball stadium. It just pops up. Uh, really nicely done. I think the interior of the ballpark's great, aesthetically pretty. Uh, when they first built it, I thought it was just going to be this, this, cave that was impossible to hit a home run in not the case <laughs> sure not the case and and i i think the the fact that they had the, the i guess the guts to build an outdoor stadium in minnesota and we'll and find fact, out about that yeah. right oh we've seen it yeah it's a it, it's a toughie in the in april but it is a gorgeous ballpark and i agree with you there are a few places that you'll go in the american league that are prettier than minnesota in the summertime We'll be there for opening day, so uh, for their opening day, that is. So uh, hopefully uh, we won't have to use that buffer day because of snow on opening day. I've been there before for their opener, and let's just say bring your long johns. I can it's imagine. Not, you know, it's not going to be a, a warm one. Hey, this does remind me of a spring training eat that I have not – I've neglected to bring up, and I can't believe it until my wife reminded me of it the other day, and the whole Goldsmith family crushed it at Lolo's Chicken and Waffles. What? Yes. No. I'm, I'm not- telling you, man. It is, there are three locations, and by the way, don't make the mistake we made this time, when we went to the Phoenix location, after dropping my brother-in-law off at the airport, we went for lunch, don't make the mistake of accidentally being taken to the location inside Chase Field. Oh, no, 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 yeah, don't do that. So, 
Google's telling us that we're right, like half a mile away, and I'm driving right into Chase Field, and I'm thinking this is not this is not right. Fortunately, the actual restaurant is like a mile from Chase Field, uh, so we didn't we have to detour too far. Uh, there's also one in Scottsdale, but it's exactly what it sounds like, right? It's chicken, it's waffles. Oh, the waffles are thin. I get mine with pecans in the waffle batter, which is. From a textural standpoint and taste standpoint, it's fantastic. It I'm sounds a, spectacular. I'm a wing guy, so I get like three to four fried chicken wings with the waffle. And then aside from the butter and maple syrup for the waffle, I also ask for a dish of what's called their honey hot sauce, which is kind of like a, a slightly acidic, sweet, and spicy sauce. So it kind of covers everything. It's really thin like maple syrup. So you can dunk the fried chicken in that, plus get a little bit of the waffle with maybe some maple syrup on that as well. And I don't see you as a Kool-Aid guy, Jerry. Could be wrong. They have three different types of Kool-Aid on tap, and they serve it in these gigantic mason jars flooded with ice. And so you see this colorful spectrum of the Kool-Aid rainbow all around the restaurant. It's it's paradise, man. It's a great spot. I I feel awful that I haven't brought it up until right now. There's, I still have a couple of nights left. <laughs> uh, so you're aware, I'm the king of Kool-Aid. <laughs> no, are you serious? This no. is it's what I do. You know? <laughs> I, I am, I'm the giver of Kool-Aid. But we have uh, Lolo's Chicken and Waffles. It's going to be on the list. Okay. Uh, two days to go. I, I had an otherwise plan, but... Oh, really? Yeah, because think about it. We have a night game this evening. We sure. have a night game again on Saturday. So I, I have one dinner shot, so... I'm gonna spend my bullet on Lolo's chickens and waffles. You better be. You it's better pretty. Be on it's it. pretty awesome, man. It's a good spot. Don't get the salad. It is on the menu. I'm not sure why, but Lolo's chicken and waffles. I'm glad uh, I can uh, hopefully show you uh, the golden path to waffle kingdom because it's fantastic. All right, one more question, Jane. This is this is kind of a baseball fan thing to do this time of year, right? Getting geared up for opening day, watch some kind of baseball movie. Jerry, what's your favorite baseball movie, man? The Natural, hands down. Uh, there's there are a couple that I like, and I actually hope I've talked about. It, I hope one day to have uh, um, Robert Wool of Bull Durham fame uh, come join us. He's an awesome guy, very funny. Uh, played the pitching coach in Bull Durham, among, among other sports related roles he's played. I think Bull Durham is the most realistic baseball movie that that I have watched. That's life in the minor leagues at the A levels and and had the chance to play in Durham and 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 live in that kind of the the, the Bible Belt where the 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 minor league baseball team drives the day and that was so realistic for the time. I think that was 1987 or 88 it came out and it was it's spot on. That's the way minor league baseball was when I came through the chain and it was it was fun. Uh, my favorite baseball movie is The Natural, and and there's it, it's a it's a fun movie that turns into uh, a romantic movie, and then it's a story about it's a story about a legend, and sure. and I, I I've never forgotten some of the scenes in that movie. I will rewatch it. I've probably seen it. If I'm in a ballpark a thousand times. It, no, I'm telling you, I used to watch it when I was in college when it, when it first came out. I'd, I'd put it on at night and, and let it. Gonna, this is your soundtrack. To that, that was my yeah. It was really? my it was my white noise. I was going to listen to the <laughs> listen to the natural. I can probably do the lines better than Robert Redford. It was it was an awesome movie. How's your bracket looking, Jerry? Uh, not good at the brackets, and the way this one played out and, yeah, and bounced nobody's. was not great for me. But we are, you know, I after I left high school, I went to high school in New Jersey. I went to college in in Virginia. When I left high school and went to Virginia, my family relocated to Kansas City. So they've lived in Kansas City since 1986. And, and, uh, my wife and I lived there for two different stops for about eight years total. 
my sister went to the University of Kansas, and, and as a family, we tend to gravitate toward KU basketball. So my dad gives me the, the highs and lows on, on what KU basketball is about. I pick them every year. So if this oh, is the year right. KU wins, I'm not astute enough to be able to, to pick the dark horse. I'm just going to pick the Jayhawks. Hey, well, at the, uh, the time that we're recording this, we're essentially a week away from opening day. We know there's a lot to happen between now and then, Jerry. Uh, but this has been a really exciting spring for the Mariners in many ways. And uh, you did a great job covering some of these minor league guys, which I have a feeling we'll probably see some of those guys over the course of 162, fair to say. Fair to say. And, I, and hopefully some of the depth that we've built up starts to really benefit us. Last year, we tapped into a lot of it. We were extra careful we, to, to the point where we've continued on just this week. Uh, acquired Dario Alvarez off waivers from the Chicago Cubs just yesterday. Uh, picked up Eric Goodell as a, as a sign, free agent signing. Uh, he had an out in his contract from the Texas Rangers three days ago. Both guys with pretty significant major league experience who are still in their 20s, have strikeout pitches, and have performed in the big leagues. You take those guys and you combine them with Jason Bradford and Ryan Cook and Sean Armstrong and Mike Morin. At the AAA level, we're, we're, we're in a much better place in terms of bullpen depth. And here what we've learned in the last week or 10 days is that we're always going to need it, and that's just the way baseball works. Opening night at Safeco Field Thursday, first pitch 7-10 against the Indians. We'll have a chance to talk right before then. Jerry, this has been a lot of fun. Thanks so much. Uh, very much. Enjoy it.